and oftentimes body language is something that you know coaches will pick at and look for the negative aspect of it you know a kid slouching on the bench or not making eye contact and i think as coaches we can get critical and bring out the things that we don't we don't want to see as coaches but at the same time you're also looking for body language as the guys who conduct themselves like the champion that they are welcome to the players podcast this is your host coach noza and on today's episode we have coach marshall cho Coach Cho is the head coach of the Lake Oswego Boys Basketball Program in Lake Oswego, Oregon. Coach Cho has been coaching for multiple years in numerous states and also internationally. His experience of coaching teams at multiple levels provides great insight on what the best of the best have done for their programs. The Players Podcast is brought to you by the Salem Hoops Project. The Salem Hoops Project provides free basketball training to kids in Northeast Salem, Oregon. It's our firm conviction that no child shall lack athletic opportunity because of financial limitations. For more information, visit SalemHoopsProject.org. Now on to the show. You've been coaching at multiple levels in multiple countries all over the world, and you've had a chance to work with some great players in your experiences at DeMatha, Lake Oswego, and with USA Basketball, and many other, many other organizations. What's a common denominator you've seen in the best players? The ones that separate themselves to me are always ones that, that realize that the game is bigger than themselves. You know, I, I like you, Matt, like I do a lot of uh, professional development, you know, that's self-driven in the off season. I, the latest thing, and I just say this because it's something that's fresh on my mind. I watched a coaching you video with Kevin Eastman, and he was just talking about how you know the best players are the ones who realize that they're a part of something bigger than themselves. And in terms of the culture that we, I've tried to build here, Lake Oswego, you know, it's a big it's a big deal that they understand that they're a part of a bigger narrative, mm-hmm. especially with the history that we have here with. Obviously, that's the easy one to pick off is Kevin Love having played here, but we have a lot of other players who've come before and after him that they need to understand that they're a part of a tradition here that's bigger than themselves. Um, and that's that's the biggest thing I notice. You know, a place like DeMatha is the same way, the rich tradition they had starting with Morgan Wooten and now being carried on by my mentor and friend Mike Jones. Those guys understand a player like Victor Oladipo who should be in the conversation for an MVP candidate, he understands that 30 years or 25 years before him was Adrian Dantley, you know, who is himself an amazing, you know, collegiate player and NBA player having played for the Pistons and the Jazz. I see the same thing, you know, when I see USA Basketball. The culture there is so strong that, you know, when I've been involved with the Hoop Summit game, the players will receive their tags and a player will look at a jersey number nine and understand that even though they're not on the national team, but they're representing the junior national team, number nine was worn by Michael Jordan. You know, number number four might have been, and I could be making this, I want to say it's Charles Barkley and, and beyond and other players. So the ones who are great are the ones who can make their teammates great, in my definition. Uh, the players at USA Basketball they may not be necessarily, they're obviously in the conversation for top 100 in the country, but what Coach Showalter has done for the last 10 years is getting those guys to buy into the fact that they got to put their personal 
goals aside and buy into the team. And the ones who are able to make the team are the ones who can do that. And having watched that at the Matha, having watched that at USA Basketball, it's something that I try to bring here at Lake Oswego. And I remind our best players that it's not just about them, but it's about something bigger than themselves. When you're in a gym for a tryout or one of the USA Basketball Combines, what's the first thing you look for when you're watching players? The easiest one, and I, I'm i going to assume a lot of coaches do the same thing, whether they're out in the AAU tournament evaluating players or, in a, as you mentioned, in a tryout setting, is body language. Uh, and oftentimes body language is something that you know coaches will pick at and look for the negative aspect of it. You know, a kid slouching on the bench or not making eye contact. And I think as coaches, we can get critical and bring out the things that we don't we don't want to see as coaches. But at the same time, you're also looking for body language as the guys who conduct themselves like the champion that they are. And they're the first ones to pick up a teammate. They're, they're the ones to make the eye contact. They're the ones slapping high fives. They're the ones clapping and cheering on for their teammates. And that's a separator. Um, at USA Basketball, obviously, that's a separator because you're looking for that culture piece. You're every, every one of those players have been told they're, they're great from day one. It might look different for our youth, or Lake Oswego youth basketball, where it's a feeder system, but it's the same thing. I want them to, I want, I'm looking for kids. If they're, in the, they're going to end up in the eighth or ninth or 10th position, whether on an eighth grade gold team or our JV team, I want that guy to be somebody who makes his teammate better. Who, you know, in, in the state of Oregon, we only get 24 games guaranteed, but we have 80 practices. And how are those eighth, ninth, 10th guys going to make, push their teammates um, in practice every day so that, so that, numbers one through eight can thrive and have success and for that guy to buy in and say they know that they played a part in contributing to that the best teams have those guys the ones that buy into maybe not playing much or at all but are still going to challenge everybody in practice and when you watch a game they're on the bench and they're the ones that are celebrating what their teammates are doing and that's a hard thing to teach young athletes i think is when you're not in the game to be involved in the game and a coach can only do so much to influence the player to do that. How would you recommend to players, whether they are starters or bench players or guys who never see the floor, how would you recommend to them to approach a game from the aspect of being on the bench? So we always want to prepare for the court. How can you prepare for being on the bench during the game? Hmm. You know, to be fair, I, I wish I had a silver bullet answer because you and I can turn this podcast turn around and yeah. you know retire with it if we have that that easy answer. The short answer is always fake it till you make it. Mm-hmm. So look the part, and eventually, before you know it, hopefully you're getting enough reps. Just like you're taking a jump shot or a finishing series in a layup, you're in the habit of doing it so that eventually you you convince yourself you tricked yourself almost to, into acting acting that way um, something that our coaching staff and I've been talking about a lot this off season as we head into year four is how do we take that next step from telling our guys fake it till you make it to authentic for them to authentically do it mm-hmm. you know where they set aside what the outside voices are telling them hey you should be starting hey you should be playing you shouldn't be that guy. Mm-hmm to let me, this is my role now let me crush my role 
until my time comes. And that's a hard thing to tell today's generation of kids, mm-hmm. the millennials that you know we like to harp on as, as we make ourselves sound older. But I really think that that's where our staff has been talking a lot about, you know, we need to do a better job of understanding where each kid is coming from. If, if I as a coach is, you know, I try to model it. Hey, look, guys, I am a 42-year-old immigrant from South Korea who didn't play, pick up basketball until I was 11 years old, who didn't play collegiately, but used the game to enhance my life and use it as a tool to hopefully impact lives in a positive way. I am the son of Bumjin and Myungja Cho, who grew up in Korea, whose parents grew up in 1950s, following the Civil War, grew up in poverty with nothing. And I am a product of two people who sacrificed everything to move to this country, not speaking the language, being ridiculed for their accents, working for below minimum wage for years and years and years so that I have an opportunity as a next generation, as a resident of Lake Oswego, raising my children to have the opportunities that they didn't have. So that's my story. And I, I share that with them so that they understand that I have a perspective of knowing that I'm a part of a story, mm-hmm. a part of a sacrifice that's bigger than myself. Well, many children, many players in our program here in Lake Oswego, you, we may have the reputation as being the wealthiest suburb and the highest performing public academic school and all that, but for us, we really need to understand, we need to take a time as coaches to understand each of their individual stories so that we as mentors can point out to them how they fit into a bigger picture for their own families and what it means for them to be a part of this community moving forward and and being a role model for the kids that are coming up. And the better we do that job, I think, the the easier it will be for our kids sitting on the bench to embrace a spot that they might not necessarily want to be in at that particular moment. But But I think that that part of we've been talking a lot about this upcoming season for us is not about the X's and O's, but it's really about getting them to see that, getting them to see the value for each individual that they bring to our program and for us as coaches to highlight that, to celebrate it, and to have it be a part of our fabric of the story that we have to tell this year. You mentioned a little bit about entitlement, and it's become more of an expectation for freshmen to come to a program and believe that they should be starting varsity, and if they're not, they better find a school where they are. Mm -hmm. And I had a conversation with a few coaches over the summer, and we talked about a lot of the Division I players that came out of Salem who did not play varsity as a freshman and some not as a sophomore. And I know you coached somebody back at the Matha, Markel Foltz, who didn't play varsity until, what, his junior year? Yeah. And I think you're right. There's an approach of learning from those ahead of you, being able to wait your time as opposed to coming into a spot and feeling entitled to earn it. Is there is there anything you'd recommend to a player who may be fighting with their parents about this and how they can shape their approach to the game? Yeah, uh, two things to two things to say about that. So number one, I oh, I didn't get it. I didn't get the privilege of coaching Markel. I was trying to gas you up. Yes, coach. I know. Appreciate that. Um, I have this story that I tell people that Markel was the three years I was there. Markel was sixth, seventh, and eighth grade going to camp, attending camp there, summer camps. The time that I left 2012 to join the University of Portland staff, I believe Markel was a freshman. So when I left. 
Matha. I was the head JV coach. And and so I didn't have the chance to coach Markel, but I kept in close touch with the coaching staff and I knew about Markel's rise, you know, from from those guys just knowing what a special kid that they had on their hands. Again, not not to be a broken record, but and and not having been there, I can't say for what Markel must have felt during that time other than the famous parallel that they make with Michael Jordan not making mm-hmm. varsity as a sophomore. Mm-hmm. First of all, there's no shame in not making varsity oh, as a sophomore at the totally. Catholic where the talent is just off the chain. But again, not to be a broken record, but you know, before Markel, we have two NBA players in Victor Oladipo and Jerry and Grant who played at the Matha. Well, their freshman year, they played on the freshman team. I mean, we're talking two college All-Americans, NBA players who didn't play at one of the most storied high school programs in the country. So again, that kind of pers- puts you into perspective that Markel can understand that he bides his time. Mm-hmm. He's going to have the kind of success that Victor Oladipo was able to have and, and others before him. So, so I think there, that speaks a lot to the tradition of a program like that. Um, the other thing, I, I think I'm kind of getting sidetracked from your original question, is for us, it's the same thing. I, I, I've only been here for three years, but I could point back to some of the players who've had success here, and not to just mention individuals, but we have a senior this year, Josh Angle, who's, in my opinion, the best shooter in the state and somebody who will make a college coach out there very happy for the next four or five years, or however long he ends up being, continuing his career. And there was a lot of talk about how when Josh came in, maybe he could be a JV player and this and that. But I, I guess I'm old school in that way. I, I, I worshiped the ground. Dean Smith walked on. I, I, you know, the way he didn't have freshmen playing or starting, you know, that kind of story. But I know how important uh, a strong player like Josh is to a particular class. And it was important that he start with the freshman team and build a camaraderie, learn how to be a leader. Eventually for him, even, you know, he ended up being a JV player by the end of his freshman season, just by necessity with some injuries that came about. But I I truly sincerely believe that it in the long term that, that helped Josh's development. He ended up being a sophomore varsity player, but again, you know, he had to take his lumps to become the player that he became, he's he is today. But even then, he had you know the culture that we were able to establish here with Andrew Mesco, Daniel Baumer, the backcourt that was ahead of him, because because we emphasized our upperclassmen really mentoring our younger guys. Josh was able to benefit from that. That we had two selfless senior guards and Daniel and Andrew who looked out for a sophomore and Josh who allowed him to you know, develop at his own pace. And, you know, another freshman last year who is, I believe, one of the top players in our state, Wayne McKinney, he will be a sophomore guard this year. I I see the way Josh is mentoring and leading him is a legacy of the guys before him. And so same thing. Wayne was actually really talented in a way that he, he ended up being one of those rare freshmen who played varsity basketball for us last year. But every step of the way, we made sure that he earned that right. He started on the freshman team. You know, he got some JV reps. And then as he proved himself, he moved, he, for him, it made sense for our team that he become our sixth man off the bench, you know, to the, to the place where, again, he's really talented. And some people out there may say that he should have been the starter. But for our program, 
it's where we were able to balance the success that he was going to have in his role and for our team to the point where we won our first league title since 2012. So it all worked out in a way where I think our narrative is that you, again, because we have that story to fall back on, at least in our program, I can't speak for others, that the next time that freshman comes, he's going to know that, again, as a broken record as I'm going to sound, he's part of something bigger. He's part of Lake Oswego basketball, which means you show the character, you show patience, you show diligence until your time comes. And when that opportunity meets your preparation, as we all know, that's when success can be achieved. Sometimes players have extreme talent, but they lack coachability. Other times, players can make up for the talent by being extremely coachable. Can you share any stories with us that confirm this truth? That's a good question, man. You're going to have to read that back to me. (laughs) So coachability means... It it comes back to value of the player. So some players' value is really talent. You know, they, they might not be the best teammate, but they're so talented, they're going to have value for the team and they're going to find a way on the floor. Other players, talent really is not extremely high. Maybe they're not even the top six or seven talent on the team, mm-hmm. but they're so coachable, they're so hardworking that you're going to find a way to get them in because they're going to help your team that way. Yep. Do you, do you Can you share any success stories like this? Yeah. Uh, I wish... I wish I had a crystal ball all, you know, 365 days ago where I would have been able to tell you who my top eight rotation players were going to be. Um, two players in particular that stand out to me that I don't think get a, receive a lot of accolades is Brandon Roberts, our junior. We say he's a small forward, but he's just a Swiss Army knife. Um, and another player, Sam Aberry, who as a sophomore stepped into a role where in his class he was always the best player and the, and the best offensive threat in his class. But as a sophomore coming in, he had to embrace the role of being our defensive stopper. So for those two guys, I'd be lying to you if I said I had penciled them as starters. I honestly didn't know what to expect. And I think that's where when I look back on it, and it's so rewarding, and also as a high school coach, it's really exciting to see who will step up this year where I don't, I may not be expecting it, but all along the guys have been prepping for that role to shine in that role is these two guys, Brandon and Sam were two guys who had the highest motors of anybody I've coached, whether at USA basketball or DeMatha or at university of Portland. And what that allowed them to do is have find success on, on the floor whether that was taking charges, 50-50 loose balls. You know, for Brandon Roberts, there's no definition as 50-50. Like, he's an 80-20 loose ball. <laughs> 80% of the ball, loose ball, is coming on our advantage. And those are the types of players, you, I think you said it, the way you said it was, that I would put them in. But really, I have no choice as a coach. Mm-hmm. And I think there's many coaches across the state and country who could pick a player like that in their own roster and say, look, I had no plans to play this kid, but he was making plays where he kept himself on the floor. And that's the case for those two guys. And now we turn around and the other pieces in our program can have the success that they can because a lot of the dirty work has been taken up by these guys who, as a coaching staff, maybe we didn't expect to have. But again, that's what, those are the players that help you win championships. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a luxury to have when you discover them Mm-hmm. And again, I think a lot of that is, you know, for me right now, reflecting on it, 
I just have to turn around and give them the credit that they had the character to wait. Now, as you and I know with Pat Riley, you know, the disease of more, is that what we call it, right? When, so, a, yeah. when a team wins something and now all of a sudden the guys are looking to expand that role. Mm-hmm. I think that's why people say it's really difficult to go from good to great. And that's the kind of leap that we we're trying to make a, the jump here. And whether we're able to accomplish that or not, really comes down to those guys knowing that that's how they crushed their role last year, sophomores and juniors, and maybe they have expectations to expand that role, but can we all sacrifice for the greater good of the team so that our ultimate mission of defending our league title and accomplishing some you know, audacious goal that we have in the playoffs, in order to accomplish all of that, it, it would come down to the, everyone, you know, setting aside their personal goal to buy into something bigger for the team. Most coaches probably have their starters kind of, they have an idea of who's going to start, who's going to be in the rotation. But if if you're outside of that and you're coachable to the point where you're willing to do anything it takes to get on the court, I think I would say 90% of the coaches are going to look beyond what they have an idea at and they're going to put you in the game because in the end, if you're doing things that a coach needs you to do, there's no way he can not play you. He just has to do it because you're going to help the team win. Yeah. I'm going to give you a hard one here. Uh-oh. Define coachability. Wow. A coachable player. Hmm. I, I'm going to say that's actions speak louder than words. The joke amongst us coaches is you'll get that bobblehead player who you give him an instruction and he's nodding yes. Yes, coach, I got it. And then he goes out onto the court and it's something opposite of maybe what you mm-hmm. asked him to do. And again, I brought up two players in Brandon and Sam, but others you know, that came off the bench for us and embraced the role, Grant Fuson, who's, a, who's going to be a senior this year, is a kid who, if he nods, yes, I know that he's going to go out and do his best to his ability to follow my instructions. And that's when you know maybe he fails at it. Uh, but you can look, you can give him a longer leash whether if it's an ill-advised shot or whatever, because everything else that you're asking him to do for the team, he's giving it 110%. And proof is, proof is in the pudding. Actions mm-hmm. speak louder than words. I think coachability, all of us, again, you know, for this, you, it takes a lot of good assistant coaches to remind you and point those things out where they say, hey, coach, you told him to do this and he's doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, you need a good staff around you, but also you... After a while, film doesn't lie. You know, your instincts won't lie to you. And you'll know that there are players who nod yes. And and there's a whole other conversation to be had about why is it not happening. And we can say, why is he not coachable? And But oftentimes that's some of it. You as a coach has have to look back in the mirror and say, did I teach so that the, the player, the student understood? Okay. If I'd done a good job and he understood it and he's shown examples of where he's done it, what's keeping him from being consistent? I, I truly believe that if kids really want to play, they're going to be coachable. So what is that hindrance that's keeping them from doing it? Mm-hmm. That's that's the fun part of why we coach, mm-hmm. trying to figure out that puzzle. And that's the fun part of being on a part of a, a coaching staff that can help solve that problem with you. Yeah. But I, I think a lot of it for us, we need to make some shift in our mindset to say, 
oh, this kid's not doing because he's a punk or mm-hmm. he's a jerk. He doesn't. He's not coachable. To a lot of times, I, uh, this comes comes up a lot in, in coaching today's players, the millennials. You need to explain the why. That's all the way from from the top of the game in, in the NBA and USA basketball all the way down to the players that we coach here mm-hmm. in Lake Oswego at a public high school in like in the state of Oregon. And we have to be equipped to answer the why. And I think once, if you've done your part as a coach to answer that, and you put that responsibility back onto the hands of the player, now it's onto them. And the the quickest way to get through to the players, in my mind, is to show them film. And say, we expected X, Y, Z, we're getting A, B, C. How can we help you make that transition if we want you to be successful? If I'm a player and I'm listening to this and I'm wondering to myself, am I coachable? What are some things I can self-reflect on to kind of evaluate my coachability as a player? That might be one of those questions where you're going to need to give me 10 minutes (laughs) to think about, right? We have three core values in our program. And when I took this job, and I'm going to say this a lot if I get a chance to speak at different clinics or speaking with coaches, Talking our craft, for me, it's about being authentic. So especially for somebody who is not somebody who grew up in Lake Oswego community, who is coming from the outside, taking over this program, I knew that the thing that I could bring here was my authenticity to, and you can't fake teenagers. Mm-hmm. They'll sniff out a, you know, if you're making stuff up, they'll sniff you out in an instant. And the, the three core values that we talk about are courage, presence, and trust. And those are all three words that I had to go through in my growth as a, as a coach in my coaching journey. And as we grow in our program, I, my hope is that we can add more words that are applicable to them. But in terms of a player being able to self-examine where, whether they're being coachable or not, I'm always, for our program, I'm always going to look back at th- those three lenses. You know, so the way I evaluate is, you know, for example, on courage is I'm not going to be that coach who pulls you out. I'm going to try my best not to be that coach that pulls you out if you make a mistake. I want them to know that they're coming from a place of acceptance, not just as a player, but as a person, that they're able to go out to the court and give it their all and not be afraid of failure. So that's how that's the framework in which I try to tell my players how to be in in engage themselves on the floor if something shows me that they're not doing that i have to put it back on them and say what's keeping you from being courageous and i'm not talking about some audacious courage it's about what's what's your fear and so that's the question i think the player has to answer for himself what am i scared of Mm -hmm. and if i'm if i have a coach who's saying act in a way to be not afraid but i'm still afraid of making mistakes what is it? Is it my lack of preparation? Did I not spend enough time in the weight room or in in the in the gym getting shots up? Is it, or is it there's something even deeper than that, other than preparation? Is it my anxiety that comes with performing in front of a bunch of people? Is that something I, I as a coach and our coaching staff, is that something we can help you with? But within our program, I have to go through our core values and say, all right, how are you going to earn my trust? Are you a guy who, when you say you're going to show up to a workout, you show up 15 minutes early? Or are you the sh- guy who's showing up five minutes late? 
can you you can look at that yourself and say coach i'm being honest with you i'm consistently late well what is it then how can i help you with that and if if we go through that those things and and the kid can kid can come to a point of asking the question what am i afraid of what's keeping me from being on time i think if we're able to hold it, show accountability for that then it takes those excuses off the table it's time for the three point play Three questions putting our guest on the spot. Here we go. What's one book every athlete should read? I'm, I'm going to fudge that answer for you and give you an advice that I received when I was in college. I was a business major at University of Oregon, miserable, but I knew that that's what I thought at the time as a 20, 21, 22 year old that I should do as my duty, get that business degree, be, you know, go out and get a job that's that would be able to provide for my family, but also for my parents who sacrifice a lot. And I was really struggling with it to the point where when I look back on it, I, I left that field and I joined Teach for America and went into the field of education. But there was a there was a PhD candidate at the time studying from Korea and he saw my struggle and his advice to me was go read as many autobiographies as possible. So you're asking me this question. I I Again, being the firstborn of three children of immigrants, I was the one who oftentimes had to figure out which path I was going to take. It's not, my parents sacrificed a lot for me, but that was not a field they can help me with. Mm -hmm. But I found a lot of mentors in reading these autobiographies. And just even the most recent ones I've read in my office right now, I got Shoe Dog with Phil Knight. I have, you know, I have all the Coach K books. I have a I have a book um, called Mountains Beyond Mountains. Um, it was about a doctor who who's working to in the public health field in Haiti, Paul Farmer. Um, that was really impactful to me. My first three years in Mozambique. So my my advice to players is, you know, and, and they might hear this interview and say, let me go pick up my Kobe Bryant book, <laughs> you know. But I really think. And this is intentional. I told you before, like I didn't come to this interview prep, but I, as I'm talking these things through with you, I'm finding that I'm I'm being a broken record. In that, when you read these autobiographies, you you're gonna be able to find connections where you are something, something that resonates with within each of those people's stories that makes you realize you're you're bigger than something. You're you can be a part of something bigger than you. You know the shoe dog book that I just read. Phil Knight started a company from scratch. But a lot of the stories that he's had to overcome, I, it resonates with me as a coach, as a father, as somebody who's trying to figure out what to do with my life at 42 years old, and it's inspiring. So I would, I would encourage players to go out, and, and they may be on an autobiography of a person that has nothing to do with sports, but it's something that's going to help them. If they, if they can make the connection between that, the lessons learned there and the, and the court, it would make them more of an asset. What's the first thing an athlete should do when they wake up? The first thing they should do is make their bed. Uh, Admiral McRaven, General McRaven, I think that he's the, there's a famous um, uh, YouTube video where he's giving that speech about, you know, I can't remember if it's the Naval Academy or the Marines, but they make their bed. It's, it's where first thing you do where you have a, a sense of accomplishment for the day that's ahead of you. I am notorious <laughs> for not making my bed. 
uh, but I've made every morning I make a conscious effort to do that and especially you know for somebody like me who's been married for 12 years it's a, it's it's an act it's an it's an act that shows that I'm I'm doing something <laughs> a bed that not just for me for, but for my wife uh, so it's it's something that reminds me that I everything that I should do is in in keeping in mind of the partner that's I'm on this journey with so I would encourage players to do that and and your last question was before going to bed correct? Yeah, what's the last thing an athlete should do before they go to bed don't do what I do and like stay on my phone checking Twitter or <laughs> or reading you know the news of the day I think um, the last thing I've been encouraging and I'm going to do this with my players it, again just I can only speak for our Lake Oswego program. I think the last thing that they should do is they should write some goals for their team and put it up on the ceiling above their head. Um, now, notice that I didn't say individual goals. Hey, write that down. You can put it in your, and I think we're all self-serving people at the end of the day. I think we're, I, my players are gonna laugh if they hear this and say, hey, we're just fighting human nature. You know, we say that a lot, whether we're going into a game where we think we're going to win by 30. It, the human nature part of it is to just ease up and mm -hmm. and not respect your opponents like the way you're supposed to. We, we're going to be in a situation playing in the Les Schwab Invitational. Maybe we're playing a nationally ranked team like Sarah Canyon or University School. Human nature is going to say to be scared, to be intimidated a little bit. So what I want our guys to do is fight their human nature. Human nature is to think about yourself. So if you have personal goals, great. Have it written down, have it in your notebook, have it in your dashboard, in your car, whatever. But what I'm going to challenge my players is to have a team goal. What do we want to accomplish as a group that's bigger than, for, bigger than you? And I want them to write down that goal and have it be on their ceiling before they go to bed. So they're looking at that and, and buying into our team goal every night before they go to bed. Uh, let's get to it. Look. Let me restore the passion in golden era fashion. That that's corrupt, you'll turn me up while we print the atlas. Pray the pain won't be in vain. Poor you say the mask it. Why they kiss ass for traction? Build my own lane and lap them. Chances are they want the credit for your sacrifice. I'll hand you the patent and recreate it twice. Ready to die, you only one and better name your price. On my 25th hour, no relation to Spike. Ask for the spike in my price. Blame the economy. You heard 444. Hope will be proud of me since 22 twos. No competition here, honestly. My mantra is supposed to pay me. Call it a prophecy. Boxing one, there's no stopping me. Word to whoever you're praying to. Cooling in the layup line. Look at what y'all made me do. Laughing at advances now. That won't even pay the dues. Y'all stacking up your rosters. Suckers always. Pay the loot.